Let's start out by praying together. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to you because we, at least in some sense, um, understand that there's more out there than what we just see. That there is uh, more to life. There's 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 something elusiveness. This this glory that that we can recognize in certain things, and we're here because we we're seeking it, and we see it. Uh, at least in part, in Jesus. But God, I pray that as we gather together, that and, and, and I have to proclaim Your Word, that Christ's glory would seem unbelievably magnificent to us. That it would seem so amazing, so stupendous, so unbelievable, that, that this world would fade away that sufferings would seem slight and that we would follow Him. God, as we look upon the transfiguration of Jesus today, I pray that these words would not go unheeded, that we would think deeply about them and that Your Spirit would drive them into our hearts so that we would be disciples of Christ. God, we thank you for your word. We ask that your spirit be upon us. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Have you ever experienced those moments in life where the world just seemed to come alive? Just like in in new ways, beyond the ordinary, beyond the things that you've experienced normally in the day-to-day root of life. I mean, just things just come just amazingly clear. Right? You... Suddenly, reality is so real that it's actually surreal. Have you ever had those times? Have you ever had those experiences? Moments of clarity. Moments of peace. Moments when you catch a glimpse of the big picture and you realize that you have very, very little to do with it. And you're glad about that. You're thankful for that. You're relieved because you're not the center of your world. Present struggles in that time just don't seem to matter. And what you find is in that moment, that moment is a moment of worship. It's fascinating. Suddenly, for that brief instant, you saw life for what it really was. Far more wonderful, far more amazing, far greater than you ever experienced on a normal given day. We can experience this in all sorts of ways. God in His kindness provides really tangible ways for us to do that. Maybe it was the first time that you placed your hand on a mother's stomach and you felt that baby move. Or when you held it for the first time. Maybe it happened because you know, you're really into horticulture and you, and you took this little seed and you stuck it in the ground and then you maybe, maybe weeks later, maybe months later, maybe years later, you're standing before this plant or this, this flower bush or this tree that came from next to nothing and you stand in awe of how is that even possible? Maybe it happens when you're out in nature. You know, you're standing on a mountain, you're by the sea, you're watching the sunrise or the sunset. I mean, I can tell you that's huge for me. Like, when we were starting out this church, just getting it going, I mean, I had, there were times where on Sunday mornings I would go out and I would watch the sunrise just to remind myself that I am not the center of the world. And that this means very little compared to God. It's amazing. 
Maybe you haven't had those experiences. So I'm going to stretch to reach all you pop culturalists now. You know, okay? So this is a stretch. Now give it. All right. Remember that scene from Lord of the Rings, right? When when Gandalf is warning Bilbo not to take the ring with him, you know, and and Bilbo's like, "You just want it for yourself." And then all of a sudden like Gandalf gets massive and his voice gets all boomy and the room gets dark and things begin to shake and he's like, "I'm not trying to harm you." Like, you know, all that kind of stuff, you know? I mean, that's a very different picture than that first scene that we see of Gandalf where he's like this joyful, you know, light, singing, cheerful, jolly kind of old man riding this horse cart shooting off fireworks for the little hobbit children, right? It's a very different picture. If I have to stretch even farther for you very carnal people, I'll do that, you know. So your friend, your friends tell you that, hey, there's this person and they're just really attractive. They're just unbelievably attractive. But when you see him or her for the first time, you're just like, am I gone? Am I still here? Okay, I don't hear myself, sorry. I'm kind of deaf. Uh, so you see this attractive girl for the first time, and you're like, oh, she is hot, you know? And you, you just can't breathe, your heart skips a beat, you know? And then all of a sudden it kind of goes slow-mo, everything goes silent, there's sparkles and dream weavers playing in the background, you know? Those kind of, you know? I mean... <laughs> Yeah, from one degree or another, you know, from varying levels, some much more than others, because, again, I'm stretching for all you carnal people there, that what we are seeing and experiencing in those moments is glory. We're experiencing glory, and it does something to us. It's amazing. We're overwhelmed. We're overcome, or we're at least completely at peace, because in that moment, we are viewing the world and we are viewing ourselves in light of that glory. And it's amazing. It's breathtaking. It's beautiful. It's, it's, and seeing glory should be. It should be. But you've thought about these instances, and I'm sure that you have some in your own lives that you can go back to, that you can look where you just kind of caught it. Let me ask you this. How, how long did those things last for you? How long did you stay on that mountaintop? Not that long, right? Pretty soon you're, you're thrust back into the real world. It's stressful. It's difficult. It's hard. You experience pain. You experience sorrow. And pretty soon those moments of glory either become this distant memory that you can't fully appreciate or it becomes something that is mind-consuming that your, your whole existence becomes getting back up on that mountain. That's all that I want to do is experience that one thing again. If only I could just rip myself from my current situation, my current struggles, my current hardships, and get back there, then my life would be great. And if I can't get there, what I'm going to do is I'm going to sell myself out for lesser glory. I'm going to take, away the, take that great thing and I'm going to trade it in for temporary satisfaction. I'm trying to fill my soul with that. Because I want to bask in that beauty. I want to have that glory. And, but I can't have it so I'm, really, I'm willing to give up the real McCoy and settle for something that is meaningless. I want to commend the desire for glory in you. That's a God-given gift when it's used as God has designed it. Okay? When you seek glory in the way that God has laid it out, that's a good thing. That's a glorious thing. That's a wonderful thing. But the problem is we're fallen. And we can't have that. And we think to ourselves that the only way that we can have that is if we have glory apart from the current situation, apart from the current struggles, apart from the current hardships, apart from the current sufferings. 
And so we look to remove ourselves from this world and plant ourselves in the fantasy world. Even if just for a moment to satisfy our souls. But the, but the situation is those mountaintop experiences, they won't last. We can't bask in that beauty forever. And even that vision that we have never really satisfies. It never really lasts. We become disillusioned because this glory uh, and suffering in our minds, it seems incompatible. I mean, how could we possibly have this glory, seek this glory, long for this glory, live in light of this glory, and be in the situation I'm in right now? We can't often make those two fit. But the reality is Mark is going to tell us that we can and we should and that this is the way that that the world works. Glory and suffering are not incompatible. In fact, we see that they go together, but a greater glory awaits. So as much as we would want it, we can't have one without the other. So to share in the glory of Christ, we find that we must also share in his suffering. And what we'll see is that in one of the greatest experiences of the glory of God ever revealed to us in transfiguration, we'll see that both fit together. Okay? So turn with me to Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. And that's page 844 in the Bibles that are there in the chairs. I encourage you to follow along. I'm glad to see you change my slide up, bro. I was kind of afraid I'd go white, you know, be like this dichotomy of black and white, you know. I don't know. You think about weird things as a pastor. I don't know. All right, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 3. That was actually a pause so you could get it there in your Bible, okay? All right. Now that we're there, Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you that there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, and one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud, This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen, until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how it is written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they pleased just as it is written of him. Now I'm only drawing two points from this text this morning. Now the first one is to share in his glory. This passage is inseparably bound to what has come before it. Mark clearly connects the transfiguration to Peter's confession and the call to discipleship from chapter 8, verses 27 and following. 
And he does this by saying, after six days, there in verse 2. Six days earlier, God had opened Peter's eyes so that he recognized that Jesus was indeed the Christ. He was the Messiah, the promised one who was to come. Right? Six days earlier, Jesus told his disciples that this Christ, this one that you are expecting, must suffer and to be rejected by the religious leaders of the day, the scribes, the priests, the, the, uh, the, the elders, and be killed and after three days rise again. Six days earlier, Peter was unwilling to accept what Jesus just said about this Christ, about how his humiliating death and suffering. And so Peter stands up and he rebukes Jesus, saying that is not possible to live like this. Six days earlier, we see that Jesus responds to Peter's rebuke by giving a rebuke of his own, saying, get behind me, Satan. You are not setting your mind on the things of man, but not on the things of God, but on the things of man. And then he gives them this stiff call. He said, hey, if anyone is to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For if anyone wants to save his life, he's going to lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake and the gospel's sake, you will save it. What can man give in return for his soul? This is a heavy call. To follow Christ, we must choose Him over self. We must choose the cross over life. We must choose the gospel over the world and unashamedly wait for the kingdom of God, not build our own kingdoms. And then in verse 9-1, six days earlier again, Jesus gives them this promise. And He said, Truly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And here we go, six days later, verse 2, we have the transfiguration. Intertwined with this identification of who Jesus is, with Jesus' profession of why He came, and His call as to what it means to follow Him, is this glimpse of the pre-existent glory of Christ. They are inextricably bound. They are together. They are intertwined. You can't separate them out. This is a vision of the true nature and glory of Christ. He is radiant, white light. Glory undimmed. Glory unhidden. Pre-existent glory revealed. This is not just Jesus miraculously changing His wardrobe. When I look at this, I'm just, I marvel at the kindness and mercy of God. Six days earlier, Peter has just rebuked Jesus. And this was no light rebuke. This is the rebuke that you give towards a demon when you try to cast him out. And Jesus' response is, hey, you know what? You're in line with Satan right here on this. You are opposed to me. And then Jesus throws the gauntlet down on discipleship. And he said, listen, this is not going to be easy to follow me. This will mean suffering. This will mean hardship. And then six days later, Jesus takes him up on the mountain with him. I mean, think about that kindness. Think about that mercy. We don't deserve that kind of, that, that kind of grace. Because we do the same thing that Peter does. We, we rebuke Jesus. We want Jesus to be what we want Him to be and nothing more. We don't want to go beyond that. We don't want to follow Jesus in the way that He has called us to. And then Jesus still invites us in to experience His glory. This is amazing. After six days, Jesus took with Him Peter, 
James and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves to truly experience His glory with them. This is unbelievable. Though as the Christ, though as the King, He has every right to make demands of His subjects. Alright? He could throw down if He wanted to. He's, He's the Son of God. But He doesn't. He invites them to experience His true nature. Well, what we see here is grace to us. And I want you to let that sink in. This is a big thing. This is not some wardrobe change. All right? He is inviting you in to see who He really is. Look at Jesus. Look at Him. Mark continues. And Jesus was transfigured before them. And His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. We hear suddenly before them, Jesus' appearance has changed. He has been transformed. His clothes suddenly became luminous. They're glowing as with light. He was brilliantly shining. Matthew adds that the radiance of His face shined like the sun. So this is more than just like, this is more than just having really, really, really white clothes. I mean, His face was glowing. Jesus' form was changed and He began began to emit light like a beacon. Okay? This is far more than that glowing effect you get when you buy a brand new white shirt and you go out on a sunny summer day. Right? This is like, And I don't know if you've ever seen that movie Cocoon when the girl begins to glow and she rises up, kind of levitates over the table. This is that kind of freaky, oh my, what are we doing kind of thing, right? This is a big deal. Jesus is radiant. He is giving off light. When Peter, James, and John look at Jesus, they see brilliant, white, light. Then suddenly in verse 4, there appeared to them Elijah with Moses. And they're talking with Jesus. Now, if you know the Old Testament, you know that those guys are really, 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 really old. Moses died on the mountain, right? Elijah taken up to heaven in a chariot of fire. We don't know what happened to that guy, but he's gone, right? And they've been gone for a long time. I always wondered how, how, how the disciples knew it was Elijah and Moses, you know, and I always get this picture of like those name tags, you know, the hello my name is, and Moses is written as black Sharpie marker on there, you know, I, I don't know. But I, I'm sure that Jesus told them and it was much more spiritual than that. But, you know, that's the kind of stuff that runs through my mind. Um, but here's Moses. This is Moses the deliverer that led the people out of slavery. This is Moses the priest, the first ever priest, the leader, the lawgiver, the servant of God. And he's standing there and he's talking with Jesus. And next to him is Elijah. I mean, Elijah was the first of the prophets during the time of Israel's kings. The one who ascended into heaven or the chariot of fire. The one who was to come again and usher in the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he too is talking with this radiant Jesus. And Jesus' glory is overshadowing them. They are seen as insignificant in comparison. Peter and James and John are eyewitnesses to the vision of glory modeled after the greatest revelation of God in the Old Testament. They would have known this. They would have sensed this. They would have caught this. They would have understood this. Jesus graciously allows them to see. He actually brings them behind the curtain to see the true power that was really at work in Him. This is not a knowledge that they could ever arrive at at their own. Okay, You could never get there on your own. It had to be divinely revealed to you. 
Okay? True insight into Jesus, this mysterious Son of Man, is afforded not by human wisdom, but by divine revelation. And they are standing in awe of it. They don't know what to do about it. Something greater is here. Far beyond what they have ever heard of before or read about in Scripture, God is revealing the true identity of His Son. And it is glorious. I mean, throughout the Old Testament, God has revealed Himself in all sorts of dramatic fashions to His people, His prophets in particular. But there is no single greater revelation to God, from, of God to man than when He revealed Himself to Moses. Now, we don't have time to look at it because we would have to look at three lengthy chapters to see, but I'd encourage you to go and look at Exodus chapter 24 and chapters 33 and 34 to get a picture of this. Right? God allowed Moses. Moses was like, show me your glory, God. Show me your glory. And so God said, hey, if you look at me, you're going to die. So here's what you're going to do. You stand in the crack of this rock, close your eyes, and when I say when, open them and I'll let you see my back. Okay? And what you see is that, that Moses, you know, he looks upon this and it's just amazing. And he's overwhelmed. He has changed. Not just spiritually, like not just his disposition changed, but physically, Moses has changed. He's not the same as he was before. <clears throat> Moses is a type of Christ. He is a pointer. He is a foreshadower of the glory of Christ that was to be revealed. And here's some of the allusions and the connections between Moses' encounter and Jesus' transfiguration. So just so you can see how they're compared, but how Jesus' transfiguration is greater. Moses had to prepare for six days before he going up to the mountain to meet with God. Jesus was transfigured after six days after Peter had confessed that he was the Christ. Both men, the event takes place up on a high mountain. Both men take three men with them. Moses takes Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu. Jesus takes Peter, James, and John. Two of the three men that were with Moses failed miserably and died. And though Peter would deny Jesus at his arrest, we see that by the grace of the God, they succeeded in their mission. When Moses came down from the mountain in Exodus 34, his face shone from talking with God. It gleamed. He was changed. And people were afraid of it. But where Moses simply reflected the glory of God, with Jesus, it radiated from within. He was the glory of God. With Moses, he had to hide his face with a veil because the people were afraid. With Jesus, he would not hide himself. He was revealed, and the people offered to make tabernacles for him. That's an important word. We'll talk about that in a minute. With both, the voice of God calls out of the cloud. You see that in Exodus 14. But God calls Moses His servant. God calls Jesus His beloved Son. And then there are allusions that are surrounding the fact that Moses and Elijah were with Jesus. I mean, here's Moses, the deliverer, the one that God has used to give the people His law. Moses embodies the law, and he's there with Jesus. He is fully agreeing with Jesus. He's submitting himself to Jesus. These allusions, coupled with the words that God spoke, when God said, listen to Him, reveal that Jesus is the promised prophet from Deuteronomy 18.15. Basically, 
Moses is about to die. He's giving the law a second time to the second generation of people. And he said, listen to me. There is the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him that you shall listen. And so the people had waited for, for this second Moses to come about. They'd waited for generation after generation after generation after generation. God sent prophets, but they weren't the one. God sent these kings, they weren't the one. God sent priests, they weren't the one. They waited for the second Moses to come. And here is Moses standing before this promised prophet. And he's saying, you are the one. He is agreeing with Jesus. Another allusion of Moses is found in Luke's account of the transfiguration. Luke says in Luke 9.31 that Jesus, Moses, and Elijah all spoke of his departure, his exodus. Same word, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Then there's Elijah. Elijah is considered the first in the age of prophets. And some question, why is Elijah so important? I mean, Elijah, he didn't write anything. He's not as, he can't be possibly as good as Isaiah or Jeremiah. Well, it's kind of funny to think about that because here's Jesus, the prophet, who never wrote anything either, you know? I mean, and, and what's insignificant about a guy who is carried up to heaven in a chariot of fire? I mean, I, I don't know, you know? And here's Jesus who would, you know, Elijah, he escaped death by this uh, glorious ascension into heaven in this chariot of fire. But here's Jesus who would conquer and escape death through His resurrection and ascend to heaven in a cloud to reign in majesty forever. Alright? You see some connections there. Some important connections. But the main reason I think that both of them are missioned is to fulfill Malachi 4, 4-6. through 6. The last three verses in our Old Testament. It says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send to you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and I strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. That's the way the Old Testament ends. And what do you see in the transfiguration? Moses and Elijah. Together the law and the prophets are bearing witness as forerunners to Christ. This great and awesome day of the Lord is at hand. The kingdom of God has come in power in Christ Jesus. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. In Jesus, all of God's promises are made complete. And Moses and Elijah are standing there bearing witness to Christ. They're testifying to Christ that He is the Son of God. All of God's promises find their yes in Him. This is a vision of true glory. As this is not a little thing just to skim over. Jesus didn't just change His clothes. This is amazing. Peter, James, and John, they're overwhelmed by it. They don't know what to do about it. They didn't know what to make out of this mountaintop experience they had. And so when Peter doesn't really know what to do, he does the only thing he knows, which is open his mouth and say something really, really stupid. Right? And so in verses 4 and 5, yet Peter says to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for he was terrified. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, you know, 
So totally freaked out, Jesus is like, or, or, or Peter's like, whoa, Jesus, well, you're really bright. Uh, I'm not going to lie. Your clothes, your face, little freaky, okay? Uh, and, and those dead guys or those guys that are long gone, you know, Elijah and Moses, I read their name tags, so I know who they are. And that's a little trippy. Uh, so why don't we just build these tents and you can go in there, okay? I don't have to look at you. And so that's what you see him doing. I mean, I mean, how did how did how did he get tents in his in his mind? He's like, I just want to build some tents, you know. Like maybe he's an outdoorsman, you know, spontaneous outdoorsman. That's what I am. At least that's what I say I am, um, you know. But he, yeah, I don't know. No, I say that tongue in cheek, but I think that there's some real, really, there's three reasons, potential reasons, why Peter wanted to build tents. First one, he's scared out of his mind, right? He's terrified. He doesn't know what to do. This glory is amazing. He's overwhelmed. He's hiding his face. He's freaking out. So he's like, you know what? If I build something, they'll go inside it. And I don't have to look at them. Right? And so that's one potential reason. But that doesn't really explain why he wants to build three tents. And when you think about this, there's something more there. He wants to build one for Jesus, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And these are not just tents. Peter wants to build tabernacles. Okay, here you see Peter is still wrestling with his religious upbringing. He's still fighting to maintain his Judaism. He wants to build tabernacles, these ornate, uh, movable tents that served as places of worship that symbolized the presence of God with them. And he's wanting to build one for Jesus, which is cool, but he's also wanting to build one for Moses and Elijah. He's wanting to memorialize this, this event. He wants to make it a holy place, but he's also wanting to venerate men and put them as equals to Jesus. And that's not cool. That's not okay. He uses this, he wants to use a bygone symbol to do that, erect these holy places, and, and he wants to bring these guys to equal standing with, with Jesus. It's, it's tragic. To see that he's still wrestling with this. He still doesn't get it. He's still bound by his misinterpretation of the Old Testament. His misunderstandings. The third potential reason is much more admirable. Okay, Peter wants to build tents because he literally wants to stay there. He wants to stay on the mountaintop. He wants to live his life continually basking in that glory. He doesn't want to leave. And that's not a bad deal, right? You should want to live in light of the glory of God. That's good, right? Good. Good for him. I mean, there is within each of us a desire for glory. We want to behold it. We want to enjoy it. We want to satisfy our souls in it. And when we do that in a way that God has designed, then that's a very good thing. Ultimately, God has made all things for his glory. And when, when we enjoy it to his praise and to his honor, then that is good. It is glorious. It is right. But the problem is we're fallen. And we desire to glory in the gifts rather than the giver. We want to share in the glory, but not because of the one who is most glorious. We want to take from him what we want. We want to substitute lesser things for the glory of God. And we've seen Peter do this before. He's already done this. He followed Christ, yes, partly out of obedience, but he also did it to receive glory of men. He did it because he's also banking on the fact that when Jesus comes into power as king, then things are going to go really well for him. Right? 
And even here at this transfiguration, he, where he stands before the glorified Jesus, he would rather stay and bask in that mountaintop experience than possibly go down the mountain and share it with others. He wants to stay there, soak it up for himself. And at this point, you can tell that there's something off in Peter's request. He doesn't know what to say. He's terrified. But if his motive was purely out of love for Jesus, then why would he be afraid? Because perfect love casts out all fear. We learn more in verse 7 when God appears. It says that a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. I mean, think about this for a minute, okay? They've just been standing in the rays of Jesus' light. He is emanating glory, bright white light. Moses and Elijah are there. If this can't get any better, then God shows up in a cloud that is huge and encompassing and overshadows them, right? They are now standing in the shadows of this cloud. They are now in the dark because this cloud has engulfed them and out of this cloud comes the very voice of God. I mean, you don't get bigger than this. I mean, here is this, the the cloud is often a, a symbol of the glory of God. You see this, God used this over and over and over again in the Old Testament. The Like the cloud that descended on Mount Sinai before Moses went up to encounter God. The disciples, just like the Israelites, stand underneath the cloud in its shadow and they're absolutely terrified. They are quaking in fear. And this voice booms out. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. This is the second time that God has shown up and spoke about his son. The first time it happened at Jesus' baptism when God tore the heavens open and the Spirit descends on Jesus like a dove and you hear this thundering voice from heaven saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. And what you have there is is God testifying, identifying, showing His favor towards Jesus. He is declaring Jesus to be His beloved Son. This is a declaration of approval. But here in the transfiguration, this is a declaration of identity for Peter, James, and John. So that they might know without question. In this climactic event, there is both a visible and a verbal testimony to the true identity of Jesus. These three men are given the gift of a glimpse of the pre-existent glory of God. And that's not enough for you, so you're going to hear the audible voice of God call out just to let you know, to leave no doubts. This is amazing when we see this. This is unbelievable. Can you imagine being there, being able to behold the glory of Christ? You're catching a picture of what Christ looked like before He became flesh. You're seeing Him for what He is, and not only are you seeing Him, but God is telling you. He's telling you. I'm just, I'm blown away when I read this. I mean, up to this point, this transfiguration is the greatest revelation of God's glory. There will only be four times that are ever greater than this one moment. The first two have already happened. The, first two, the second two are yet to come. The first two are Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven. The last two are Jesus' triumphant return and his eternal reign. 
But there's deep irony in what God says here. Okay? These three men are trembling as they gaze at the radiant glory of Christ. And God says to them, listen to him. Notice that God doesn't say, behold, my son, look at him. No, God says, listen to him. Listen to him. It's not enough to behold His glory. You must listen to His words and follow Him. The climax of this encounter with glory is the call to listen to Jesus. You see, divine revelation is to be heard and believed and followed, not seen. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the Word of Christ. We praise God that He has given us the testimony, all the testimony we have and we need right here in the Word of God. We don't need more than that. All we have to do is listen. The experience is great. Being able to see the glory, great. But it's not enough. You've got to listen. All right? They have to deal with the same thing that you and I have to deal with. And at the end of the day, what matters is that we listen, that we heed, that we follow the Word of God. Then, just as unexpectedly, after Jesus or after God's voice thunders down, everything disappears and there's only Jesus. Verse 8 says, And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. Things vanish. They just disappear. The glory that they just beheld is gone, and there was Jesus. And what this signifies is that God and His Word testify to Christ. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He fulfills the law and the prophets. Moses and Elijah, who represent those commend Him. They agree with Him. They submit to Him. They find their completion in Him, and God backs it up. And so all that you need is right there in the person and work of Jesus Christ standing before you. These three men have experienced firsthand Hebrews 1, 1 1-3, the the passage that Caleb read earlier, being played out before them. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed heir of all things, through whom He also created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of His nature, and upholds the universe by the word of His power. Here, you have seen the radiance of the glory of God. You have seen the exact imprint of His nature, the universe creator and sustainer. And yet what matters most is that God has spoken through His Son. Seeing is not believing, hearing is. It's amazing. Peter would later reflect on this moment in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 16-21. through 21. He says, For we have not followed cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses to the majesty, but to his majesty. For when we received honor and glory from God the Father, when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with Him on the holy mountain. He's clearly talking about the transfiguration. And then He says this, and we have something more sure. 
We have something that is more sure than that vision of glory that we got to be held. Hold. We, we have something more sure than hearing the voice of God from heaven, from a cloud. What could it be? He says, we have something more sure, the prophetic word, to which you will do well to pay attention as a lamp shining in the dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. You know what you need? You need the Word of God. This is Peter, that guy right there that we're reading about. The guy quaking in fear underneath the glory that he sees before him. The guy who has just heard audibly the voice of the Lord. He is now saying, you know what? You don't need that mountaintop experience. What you need is the Word of God. You just need to listen to it. That's funny. God just said that. We have got to get this. We have got to. To get this, faith and glory are not produced or sustained by mountaintop experiences. We can't keep looking for those. We can't find our fulfillment, our growth, our sustenance in those glorious moments of life. But instead, we do it through something more sure, the Word of God. He says, listen to Him. Listen to Him. Hear Him. This is, this is not about you or your glory or what you can gain from Christ. This is about His glory and how He is going to reveal it. He doesn't reveal His glory with the, Jesus on this throne, but rather Jesus on a cross. He doesn't reveal it with a crown of gold on Jesus' head, but rather a crown of thorns. And if you are going to share in His glory, you must awful Also share in the way that it comes about. You can't miss that. If you don't get who Jesus is, if you don't get the greatness of His glory, if you don't get why He came, then you won't follow Him. You won't. You may make a profession, but you are really seeking your own glory and you're using Him to get it. You see, our discipleship flows out of our Christology. Our willingness to follow Jesus is directly dependent upon how deep our understanding is of who Jesus is and why he came. And that doesn't come as we see visions, but as we read and listen to and heed the word of God. If you truly understand who he is and why he came, then you will follow him, even into suffering. Because you recognize that glory and suffering are not incompatible. To share in His glory, second, we must also share in His suffering. Now don't worry, the second point is not nearly as long as the first. Okay, It's not. But typically when we come to the transfiguration, we stop right there. We stop with verse 8 and we forget all about 9 through 13. We forget all about the context that it takes place in. We actually commit eisegesis by pulling this text up, just looking at it by itself and then kind of moving on, forgetting about the context that's there. All right? We ignore the fact that this event happens in the midst of a fallen world. That it, that it happens in the midst of unbelief. That it happens in the midst of pain and suffering. If Jesus' sole purpose was just to come here and to reveal who he was in all his glory, then Mark could have ended right there in chapter 9, verse 8. 
But he goes on. It continues. The job is not done. Jesus has left his pre-existent glory, though by no means giving it up, in order to enter into a suffering world, in order to himself suffer and die, and to call others to come and do the same, so that they might ultimately be freed from suffering to live in his eternal glory. The disciples were hoping for messianic triumphalism. That this promised Christ would come and earthly glory would reign. That that it would be sweet. That it would be glorious. That all suffering and hardship and everything would be removed. And that, that the world would just be awesome for me. That's what they were hoping for. But Jesus showed them a different way. He doesn't continue in the radiance of His transfiguration. He returns back to His former state and He leads them down the mountain. Verses 9 and 10, as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising of the dead might mean. I mean, Jesus knows that they don't understand. They still don't get it. They don't, they don't realize what they've just witnessed, and so he tells them not to tell anything, you don't have to say anything until he's risen from the dead. Only then will they be able to really comprehend the glory of Jesus. Only then will they begin to understand what they've just seen. And that includes suffering. That includes death. That includes the cross. Jesus' true purpose in revealing His glory was that He might give His life as a ransom for the sins of many. And to rise as the exalted Son of God who would rule for all eternity. And to judge the living and the dead. Jesus' complete glory cannot be understood and experienced without the cross. Without suffering, without pain, without hardship. The disciples, they still don't get that. They're still thinking like they did before. They're still awaiting this resurrection at the very end of the world. But they couldn't understand that their Christ would have to suffer, be rejected, to be killed, and to rise three days later. Verse 10, again, clearly connects this passage back to what came before it. Right? I mean, here's the glorious Son of God the exact imprint of His nature, He had to come and to live a perfect life to fulfill the law. He had to suffer brutally and to be rejected by the religious elite, by the best of the best. He had to die on the cross to pay the penalty for sin. And He had to rise in order to prove that God's wrath against sin had been satisfied and to verify that He was indeed the Son of God because He predicted it and it happened and to guarantee that He would reign in glory And that all people would stand in front of Him as judge, as king, as eternal ruler and have to give an account of themselves before Him. He would usher in the great and awesome day of the Lord. But that can only be understood truly in light of the cross. We have to get suffering as part of Jesus' glory. The disciples, they don't get it. I mean, they're still hung up on this incorrect or incomplete understanding that was held by their religious leaders. What Jesus is saying goes against everything that they've been taught. Okay? And so in verse 11, they ask him, why do the scribes say that Elijah must come first? I mean, they're thinking about how they've been taught to understand that Malachi 4, 4 through 6 that we looked at a little while ago. Basically, they were told that, hey, Elijah is going to return in this chariot of fire. The day of the Lord's going to be here. You know, all our enemies are going to be vanquished. We're going to rule. It's going to be awesome. 
sweetness, you know? They're looking at that, that half of that verse 6 where it says, you know, and the, the hearts of fathers will turn to their children, the hearts of children will turn to the fathers, but they ignore the second half that says, lest I return and, and just basically bring utter destruction upon the land. Because they couldn't possibly imagine that God is speaking about them. That that might be uh, their end. They're still wanting to go in their own way. They're still wanting to read in their own ideas, their own wants, their own glory into the text and ignoring what God is truly saying to them. And we do this all the time. We do. Anybody familiar with Jeremiah 29.11? Right? You've heard that over and over and over again, right? Uh, This is a verse of great comfort to us. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. You're like, sweet! God's got a future for me! I'm going to prosper! This is going to be awesome! It's great! So when I'm down, I know that this this is the hope. But what we forget is the context, right? That Jeremiah writes a letter to the elders of the exile to prophets, to priests, to leaders who are have been given over as slaves to Babylon. They've been carried away. They've lost everything. Many people have suffered and died. They're under foreign oppression. Things are looking bad. He's writing them and he's saying, listen, things are about to get worse because you are going to die in captivity. Many have already died by the sword or pestilence or famine, but more will. Right? You've already lost everything, but guess what? The cities and the temple are going to be destroyed. Right? This is what you have coming to you. But yet, God's promises remain. He will be faithful to His covenant to Israel. He will restore. He does have a plan. He does have a future. It's just not going to include you in your lifetime. Can't read that passage the same way, can you? You really can't. It changes everything. And we do the same thing with the transfiguration. We're focusing on the glory of Christ revealed and we're ignoring the context. We're ignoring that that Jesus has predicted about Himself. We're ignoring that Jesus has called them to deny themselves and take up their cross. They're ignoring the fact that Jesus had led them down the mountain on the way to the cross. We can't read this instant like the disciples with our own glory in mind. We have to read it with our hearts set on His And so Jesus responds to their question in verses 12 through 13. Elijah does come first to restore all things. He does. And how the Son, it is written that the Son of Man should suffer many things and be treated with contempt. But I tell you that Elijah has come. He has. And they did to him whatever they pleased, just as it is written of him. Jesus says, yes, Elijah will come first. He will Restore all things. Matthew adds that in, in verse 17, 13, that the disciples understood that Jesus was speaking about John the Baptist. They put it together. Oh, wait. John is the second Elijah. He's the second coming of Elijah. And what happens there is that, that, that John, who came to restore all things, not by just making everything great and glorious and wonderful like they hoped, but rather by, repi- re- by preaching the repentance of sin and the hope of this mighty one who was to come, this, this Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world if you would repent and believe in Him. Jesus connects John's preaching to His own prediction as the fulfillment of Isaiah 53 that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. That the Son of Man must suffer many things and be treated with contempt. The restoration would come only through the suffering Son of Man, not without it. Jesus then says, 
Not only did He come, but they did to Him whatever they pleased. And you know what else? It was written that this would happen. You might not have seen it, but it, it was written that Elijah would have to suffer. That this, this uh, one who is to prepare the way of the Lord, this forerunner, would have to suffer. And he's referring to 1 Kings 19, where you have this wicked woman and this really weak king who are doing everything in their power to destroy the prophet of God. You've got Jezebel and Ahab trying to kill Elijah. And where they didn't succeed, the task was picked up by another wicked woman and another weak king to kill, to behead the prophet of God. You've got Herodias, Herod, and John the Baptist. They accomplished it. They did whatever they pleased. But I think that this also refers to Christ who has come and they they will do to him whatever they wanted just as it is written. What you see in Moses and Elijah and John the Baptist and Jesus is this pattern of giving up temporary glory for an eternal glory. And that comes through a willingness that we should embrace suffering to receive it. Jesus is saying to his disciples here that so that they would see that glory and suffering are not incompatible. In fact, they go together. He said, listen, if it happened to Elijah, and it's going to happen to me, it's going to happen to you. If you want to share my glory, you must also be willing to share in my suffering. And that's Mark's message to his original audience. Remember who they are? They are Gentile Christians living under the persecution of Nero. And he's saying to them, if you want to share in Christ's glory, you also have to share in his suffering. And that's his message to us as well. It's not just his, but Paul's also. Romans 8, 16-17. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided... We suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. The writer of Hebrews, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, guys that have given up everything, guys that have been sawn in two, they have not received what they would have been promised. Since we've been surrounded by all them, let us lay aside every weight of sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider Him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. For the joy set before him, Jesus endured suffering, humiliation, and death. Not only to enter into his own glory, but to bring many sons and daughters with him. You see the connections. Friends, we have to learn deferred gratification. Alright? Jesus isn't here to give you your best life now. But He will give you your best life ever. We must wait for our blessed hope. We all want glory, but are you willing to listen to Christ and embrace your cross to get it? He has a cross for you. It's going to look different from the person next to you. But you have a cross to bear. To share in His glory. And we also must share in his suffering.
Let's pray. Father God, I I pray that Christ was honored in what was just said. God, I pray that uh, our eyes were opened greater to to a, a, a more clear understanding of His glory and who He really is, that He is the Son of God. And we'd be blown away with what we've just seen in this text. But God, I pray we don't just stop there, but that we would listen to Him. We would follow Him. That we would deny ourselves and take up our cross daily and follow Him. God, I pray that these would not just be blank words, but we would feel the weight of them. That we would live every day in light of them. That we would be transformed by them, ourselves, from one degree of glory to another, to be more and more and more like your Son. God, I pray for the souls of the people in this room. I don't know where everyone is. And God, I pray that, that you would be at work on them. God, I pray that you know, if there's some here that haven't accepted Christ, that haven't embraced this, this call to discipleship, that they would do so. I pray for those who have made professions, but really are living for themselves and their own glory, that they would recognize that Christ's glory is far greater. And that suffering is a very light affliction compared to the weight of glory. And I pray that we would all run with endurance, focusing our eyes on the glory of the cross. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.